Ben. Thanks to Cry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. And once again, we're joined by Australian Brews News editor, James Atkinson. Pete, James, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. I was going to wait for... Local malt for local people. I was going to wait for Pete to go first. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we are uh, experimenting and uh, listeners yes we are just uh, in our constant quest for continuous improvement we are looking at the, how we do things and this episode is going out in two parts uh, it'll drop on friday as we have regularly been doing but we've been looking at ways that the conversations we get a lot of feedback about people going back they discover the podcast and go back to previous episodes and don't necessarily want to wade through five-year-old news to get to the interviews that are probably a little bit more timeless and so we're going to split this episode and uh, we want to hear your feedback about uh, how it goes but we're going to have Radio Brews News as a half-hour discussion where James, Pete and I discuss this week's news and uh, give our own perspectives on it and then we're going to run the interviews that we've done today as a separate downloadable file called Beer as a Conversation. So it is an experiment. If you hate it, we can always go back. There's no harm, no foul but if you do like it, we'll probably even go back and uh, dig out some of the old podcasts and release those files as a beer as a conversation file as well. So, uh, fellas, let's crack on. Pete, how's your week been? Yeah, not too bad. Had a, a quiet week in between Gabs's and um, preparing to head off to Auckland and had a very enjoyable beer club at uh, my daughter's primary school that I run fairly regularly, a couple of times a year. And we had four mums and a grandmother join the crew this time. So uh, we had a lovely little beer and cheese where we had uh, we had some Bolter Pilsner and the XPA went down particularly well uh, because we we did a bit of a, I guess, a, you know, 25 years of the AIBAs. I did a little bit of a, a beer judging to match him with the beer and cheese. So a lot of fun. Terrific. And how about you, James? What's been keeping you busy this week? Oh, I've actually been pretty quiet, to be honest, after the um, the dual, you know, effect of my trip to the States and CBC and then travelling around Oregon and then coming back here and pretty much going straight to Beer Week. It's been a pretty quiet few weeks for me. However, I did go out last Thursday night for a, a nail brewing tap takeover, caught up with John Storwood, um, tried some of his lovely beers, including the VPA, which has been, you know, one of my favourite beers of the last few weeks, actually, or the last few months, actually. Uh, you haven't been, maybe uh, socially you've been a little bit quiet, but you've certainly been busy on the news front, um, and maybe we'll uh, get straight into the news. So, James, class action brewing on tap contracts. Do you want to give us the uh, pricey of that little story that you broke? Yeah, well, as everyone knows, there's been an ACCC investigation going on into, into TAP contracts for three years and four months now. And from what I'm hearing, that's actually getting quite close to the ACCC um, handing down its deliberations. But in parallel to that, over the last couple of months, apparently been a group of brewers that have been speaking with a Melbourne law firm by the name of Adley Burstiner. Uh, whose principal, David Burstiner, has a, you know, a long sort of history of uh, working on class actions, group claims around the area of areas of anti-competitive conduct. And so he's meeting with these brewers and trying to put together a case against the two major brewers, CUB and Lion, alleging that their tap contracts may be anti-competitive and also seeking damages uh, or compensation for the brewers that join together and bring this class action. It's an interesting one as a matter of law. Uh, did you look much into you know, whether 
they will have more success than the ACCC um, is, is likely to do? Or do they bring the action a, a, under the same heads of uh, legislation that the ACCC would be prosecuting under? I think that it's not as clear-cut as them only having the same framework to work under that the ACCC does, but it is fair to say that these types of class actions with competition law are very rare. I think that there's only been five in Australia. Uh, I'm not sure over what time frame, but it, it was a very small number, and apparently there are various reasons why that's the case. But David certainly does sound like he's confident that there is a case for the brewers to potentially answer, so it's going to be it's going to be an interesting one to to keep an eye on. And and actually, when I initially wrote the story, um, the Facebook group that the law firm had set up to find um, interested parties, it had ten only ten people in it, of which there are a couple of names that I recognised from from breweries. And since we wrote our article, I think that's up around ninety. It's still a small number of people, but if you assume that you know most of those are breweries, then I guess yeah, it's a significant yeah. a significant number of of um, breweries in Australia that might be might be keeping an eye on it. Then again, have you ever heard a class action lawyer trying to beat the bush to get more litigants up ever not sound confident? I, I suppose that's I suppose that's also true. But there's going to reach reach a point where someone's going to have to put their money up because yeah, it's it's one of these things that you know that the brewers themselves won't actually have to fund the litigation, and nor will. Adley Burstiner, he'll have to find a litigation funder to to um, put up the cash. And so I suppose that's when we'll really find out whether there is a case because for someone to take on that risk, then they're going to want to be very confident that they've got a chance of, of getting a favourable result. A very good point. And uh, Pete? James, is it likely that, um, or is there a possibility that this will come to like the negotiating table or is it more likely to be lawyers at 20 paces? I think it's probably too early to say really because you know it's really very much in the preliminary stages I, yeah I, I can't comment that's probably a question for for david i mean yeah i, I just i just couldn't comment really <laughs> no it'll be, it'll be interesting to see whether or not yeah the the party sort of go well let's sit down and, and talk about this and, and come to some sort of conclusion rather than taking it all the way to court yeah and Prof, what are your thoughts? I know that we've, you and I have batted this one around uh, on the podcast before, and uh, you know, you, you've also had long chats with uh, Mazen Hajar, who's very passionate about the issue. Do you have any personal thoughts about uh, tap contracts and their evilness or otherwise? Uh, look, I guess, you know, we've spoken quite a bit about this, and I think anything that, that restricts the ability for small players to get into the market is something that we do need to, to have a serious look at. But at the end of the day, I'm, I think if we all want to operate in a free market economy, we've kind of got to assume that, that there are going to be uh, natural restrictions to you know having a, having a free crack. I think a lot of brewers probably also perhaps need to, to look outside the square a little bit. And that's where I, I think the venues are starting to catch up a little bit. Like if we, I think if we start looking at RSLs and, and rather than assuming that you know certain places won't take craft beer, um, rather than can't take craft beer via contracts. I think if we start looking at new markets, you know, whether it's the local pizza shop and, and perhaps getting a, a half a dozen in the fridge as, as a small step, I know that's only, you know, small potatoes, but I think part of, it, part of me says, yeah, we've got to let things take their course. But certainly I think everyone's got to be coming off a, you know, a fair and an equitable starting point. Well, and that's where I always grapple with what is equity, um, because you know what what is an equitable solution? Because the big brewers have phenomenal advantages just 
by sheer, you know, size, scale, capacity, you know, all of those things over over small brewers, and they are going to always be able to use those. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we have an industry that has been set up around there being two brewers who provide, and there are a lot of publicans who just rely on the big brewers to do a lot of their thinking for them. And there is a, you know, there is an evolution that's taking place in the market. And as that evolution takes place, as the consumer demand changes, we are really seeing the market dynamics change. And you know, I had some meetings recently with um, big groups uh, who look at buying over you know, multiple venues and uh, looking at their decisions over the next few years and talking about, well, our contracts are gradually starting to come up and we do want to change. And so we are seeing the market change. And, and I always feel that having that orderly, you know, scalable change is much better than just suddenly, you know, tipping up the card table and seeing what happens. And, you know, I always uh, refer to the law of unintended consequences. And if we suddenly outlaw tap contracts, for example, then there's a whole lot of flow-on things that are naturally going to, yes, the big brewers won't be able to go in and lock in uh, venues, but at the same time, there are going to be a whole lot of other things. And uh, it was interesting in our chat with um, Ken Grossman that in the US, Sierra Nevada can't walk into a venue and clean their tap lines in a whole lot of states because that is seen as something of value that under the pay-to-play laws, they can't do. And there are a whole lot of venues that either don't or won't or can't um, or don't have the skills to maintain their tap lines the way that a brewer would. And uh, so that, you know, that was just one example of a detriment that I gave. But uh, one of the points that I made, there was a fairly robust discussion I had with Muzzin on Facebook. And uh, I, I raised the, the issue of the beer orders. Um, and for, for listeners that aren't aware of those, you know, I'll quote Roger Protz, who is a very well-known English beer writer. And he said, yes, the law of unintentional consequences sums it up brilliantly. The beer orders were the result of a massive report in 1989 by the Monopolies and Mergers Commission that found that the big six national brewers acted as a cartel, overpricing for beer, lager in particular, they accounted for around 70% of beer production, owned more than half the country's pubs and excluded smaller brewers from their pubs as a result of the tie. The Monopolies and Mergers Commission said the big six should sell half their pubs and turn the rest into free houses. These proposals became Thatcher's government's beer orders. So far, that sounds like a fantastic idea and pretty much what Australian brewers are calling for. But then he says, but a perceptive minority report in the MMC findings by a man called Leif Mills, General Secretary of the Bank Workers Union, said the result of abolishing the tie would be that the pubs would be owned by property companies who would run the pubs like supermarkets, charging inflated prices for beer and bought by bigger suppliers at huge discounts, which is precisely what happened. The three big pub companies, Enterprise Punch and M&B, now own more pubs together than the old brewers did, charge high prices for beer, which they buy mainly from the likes of national and global brewers, and unlike the old big brewers, charge eye-watering rents to the licensees. So essentially, the brewers were forced to sell their hotels, but those hotels were then bought up and an even worse situation was created. And I also remember that at the time, some of the brewery owners decided, well, we can either be publicans or we can be brewery owners. And they sold their breweries and decided to set up these pub co's. And so we saw some of the venerable old breweries pass into the hands of the large multinational brewers, which is an unintended consequence that ended up being worse in a lot of cases than what went before. And again, so that's a very long way of saying, my fear is that when we are seeing so much change take place, something like this can come in and actually create 
a worse situation than we can otherwise expect. What that is, I don't know, but that's why it's an unintended consequence. Well, I think I think one of the the simplest you know effects that it could have is that if the big guys weren't out there putting catch systems in for people, which can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, then what's going to happen to that money that they're no longer investing on tap systems? They're always going to be able to sell their beer cheaper than any small brewery because they've got exactly. economies of scale that small brewers don't have. And as you say, um, and, you know, it's interesting, Muzzin rails against, you know, the stupidity of hoteliers taking upfront payments when the discounts that they would get over time would be much higher. But, you know, that's the nature of business. You know, some people do prefer an upfront payment um, because it lets them invest cash in their business now rather than a, a, a trickling amount through cheaper beer kegs. And, uh, uh, you know, ultimately publicans are businessmen too and they're going to make the right business decision. I don't see big brewers going in with a gun in their hand forcing anybody and that's becoming harder and harder as consumers are choosing more choice, uh, you know, choosing more independent beer. And I think the more that small independent brewers mark out you know, a market for themselves and educate consumers, that demand will continue to increase. And the skills to support, um, you know, that the pub skills um, to support small beer will, uh, will grow as well. Anyway, I, I think we've got that one on the ground. Uh, Prof, was there anything else that you wanted to discuss? Um, yeah, the other one that I looked at was the one that you brought up. Well, unintentionally perhaps. What's the best temperature to drink beer at? Yes, well, I, I sort of waded in uh, to a couple of Facebook discussions this week um, against my uh, better judgment. <laughs> um, last night, last night there was a post on one of the uh, yes, yeah, very very popular Facebook uh, discussion panels, uh, and Dan Murphy's has recently drawn a prize for their home home brewer, uh, so a home beer reviewer. So some uh, some guy at home, though, everyone was invited to send a video of them reviewing a beer, and Dan Murphy's would choose a reviewer, and uh, there was a post highlighting the winner and he made the mistake of as part of his review walking to his fridge and uh, taking a glass out of the freezer and you know he, he poured his can of pirate life into it and he was soundly lambasted for chilling a beer glass and I just made the point that you know look this guy's a home reviewer you know Dan Murphy's also invests a lot of uh, time in educating at a different end of the market, and they've got Curly Waldhorn doing a whole lot of educational instructional videos. This guy is meant to be making craft beer inclusive, and I think you know shit canning him or you know having a, a real go at him, um, not over his beer choice, but over his method of uh, enjoying that beer was was the wrong way to go. And I, I, I did ask the question, you know, are there any rules around what? temperature you serve a beer at there are a whole lot of principles that are based on the way that we you know, our human physiology of taste and also our perception of flavor um, that mean that the perception of flavor of a beer changes depending on the temperature that you serve it at but ultimately we drink beer for the pleasure it gives us and who's to say what then is the rule around we, we should drink it at the uh, temperature that gives us the greatest enjoyment because that's what beer is ultimately about um, so yeah, so um, I know James, um, as a recently uh, sort of qualified Cicerone, you've got some thoughts about this. <laughs> I just made the comment to you that um, I think in a professional beer service context, pouring beer in, into a glass that's come out of the freezer is to be discouraged, just because it can, um, you know, ruin the head. However, in that particular video, which I watched after you pointed me to it, it comes out with a beautiful head on it. So. Um, 
you know, you can't really make that point in this particular case. And, yeah. um, you know, what a man does in his own home, man or woman doesn't do in their own home with, with beer um, is, is up to them. I, I don't really think that, you know, it's for us to tell anyone else how they should serve beer at home. Prof, is frosted glasses a common thing in Melbourne? Um, at certain venues that, that, that share a common DNA, the larger sort of ALH-style beer barns. We have a catch-up um, to uh, celebrate a mate who passed away nine years ago, and that actually happened on Monday. We caught up for our yearly um, drink, and it, it, look, we always go to you know one of our old watering holes from all my pre-craft beer days. And, yeah, all the, all the glassware was, was in the fridge. I'd love to send a shout out to um, to our listeners. If there's somebody out there who has like a, um, what are the, you know, the, the temperature guns, like what I'd love to see is the temperature of a glass that comes out of a, a freezer, the time it takes you to pour the beer into the glass, test it again. To me, I don't think it holds, or I think it just creates condensation. But I'd love to, I'd love to know that, that there is a difference. Because like, like James said, you know, I always assume that it's harder to rustle up a decent head with a, with a frozen glass or a chilled glass. Um, but he seemed to, you know, wind one up fairly with with ease. So perhaps we're wrong there. I could be completely wrong, and maybe it actually does hold the chill longer than I think. I'd love to find out. It's definitely something Ray Daniels said in, when I interviewed him a year or two ago. Yeah, for Brews News, you can see that article, and he mentions that as being something that's quite common in Australia, which is supposedly a bad practice. But yeah, I mean, the the proof in this particular case is in that video because. Um, not only was it a nice, a nice looking head on that beer, um, it was also it looked like a really nice clean glass as well. But see, and that's where and one, one of my favourite quotes, and I'm pretty sure I got this from you, Prof. And if if I didn't, it certainly sounds like something you'd say. Uh, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. So you can have all of the understandings of what best practice is, but actually having experience and wisdom is knowing when to apply those principles. And I think, James, you're spot on that you know, there are a whole lot of principles around best practice. But you know, I know that you know, Brisbane on a 34-degree day, if you try and tell a publican not to chill his glasses, he will tell you my bar will be empty if I do that because there is still a market for people who want a beer that's refreshing. And that's certainly the case in Cairns. You know, like uh, if you try and pour a beer into a, a glass in Cairns, and Cairns is in the city, not Cairns, the uh, receptacle, people will tell you, no, I want the stubby because I want a stubby cooler because I want to keep my beer cold. Um, and, and they'll drink it out of the bottle. And, uh, you know, who's to say that they're wrong for doing that? You know, I, I personally have a mission to get people not using standard pot and pint glasses because I think they're a horrific vessel for anything other than glasses to stack them. But at the same time, you know, if you give somebody a wine glass that has a 285ml um, pot or a 425ml pint plimsoll line on it and you fill it right to that line and even over but leave two or three centimetres below the rim line of the glass, people will start you know, thinking that they've been ripped off because whilst visually it's a much more appealing way, um, you're going to get a much nicer drinking experience from it. People are conditioned to having their beer glasses filled to the top. So whilst there is a cultural change that needs to take place there, it's not going to happen straight away. So you know, again, it's one of those things. I think it's best practice, but it's one of those cases where the consumer is right. So yeah, know your rules, understand them, implement them when it's the right thing. But I think it's a little bit wrong. You know, Dan Murphy's really does seem to be trying to engage people in craft beer. And by being too hard on a guy who's just trying to enjoy his beer, creates, you know, a little bit of a walled garden around uh, beer and makes it scary. And it creates all of those things that a lot of people feel intimidated by the, the culture around wine. 
Yeah, and to be honest, Matt, I think uh, a lot of those cracks are at, at the um, the presenter. Or it's having a crack at Dan Murphy's rather than having a crack at a bloke who had a frozen glass. Well, I, I, I guess, you know, again, you know, Dan Murphy's, you know, is probably responsible for a few beer crimes uh, along the way. But at the same time, they see that their business is really about educating and getting people into craft beer. They have Kiralee doing some wonderful videos that are taking that higher education, that beer and cheese pairing, looking at glassware. Um, and she does a terrific job of that. And this guy is providing a whole different outreach to consumers. And, I, you know, I think you, you don't criticise them for, you know, really trying to get more people drinking beer. Ultimately, that's what everybody you know, in the industry is trying to do. Yep. Any other thoughts, guys? James? Um, oh, I just I think it's great that they are actually, you know, investing resources in having someone, um, you know, create video content around a beer from a, you know, independent brewery like Pirate Life, a session IPA as well, like a pretty sort of challenging style for some people. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of positives to take, to take from it rather than overanalyzing that one particular issue. And actually, the, the, the funny thing was uh, one of the guys who weighed in on the Facebook um, profile talked about he loves drinking Bridge Road Robust Porter as cold as he can after he finishes mowing the lawn. And he, he discovered that by accident because one day he came in after the, mowing the lawn and the only beer that he had in the fridge was Robust Porter. And he sort of was hell-bent on having a lawnmower beer and that was it. And uh, ever since then, he loves drinking his uh, Robust Porter as cold as he can get it, you know. Ultimately, he's drinking it for their enjoyment, and uh, who's to say how you, you know, how anyone enjoys the beer better than anyone else? Moving on to Amen. yeah, <laughs> testify. Um, the one other story I wanted to touch on, and it was a big story that broke over the weekend, and um, the beer rating site Rate Beer, and and I'll say that they were outed. They took an investment uh, six seven months ago from an investment company that is exclusively 100% owned by AB InBev. Um, and they hadn't told anyone, they hadn't told any of their contributors, they hadn't told any of their partners that AB InBev had this stake. And the guys that could be hunting discovered it by mistake. They were doing some research and um, LinkedIn is a great source of uh, research and they just stumbled upon a story that they broke and uh, Rate Beer has been trying to catch up with the story and uh, put their sort of part. But it, I, I found this a fascinating story for a whole lot of reasons, particularly that AB InBev would invest in a beer rating site. James, what do you think's behind that? Uh, well, I think in the coverage I've read, they said that it was just about, you know, market intelligence for them, learning a bit more about the way people consume beer um, and, you know, just that sort of, um, you know, getting sort of data and all that kind of stuff that would, would help them w with their own brands. Um, I find it very concerning and a, a bit of a strange move that the the guys that the, the people who started rate beer and the other shareholders would have um allowed that to happen because it just compromises it completely compromises the integrity of the site um it wouldn't be a world away from from ab InBev buying a stake in brewer's news uh, which I, th I think you could you know assume that our credibility would be would be pretty badly diminished by that happening because we'd lose our independence. I think there's going to be a real question hanging over any any review that is on rate beer now because even though they'll say that it's all being done at arm's length and all that kind of stuff that people say when they enter into deals like this, it just does raise all sorts of questions about conflicts of interest. And um, it's actually the sort of second... But isn't there a little bit of a 
so, sorry, just before you, you, you moved on, yeah. I was just going to say, isn't there a little bit of a difference? You know, sure, surely if, you know, if they took a stake in Brews News, which is much more of a news site where we generate the content, Rate Beer is much more of a user-generated content thing. So there is that, you know, so long as they're not, you know, deleting reviews or how anything would you along know? those lines. Um, how would you know what they were doing with them? Well, I, I guess people... Social media is pretty powerful. If somebody finds that their reviews are being deleted or um, they can't find them or they're being edited, uh, you know, they, they've got a, rap, a very easy source through other social media, Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook, to call rate beer out. So I would have thought that it would be a, you know, a very hard thing to, to have that level of compromise. Well, look, you know, but I mean, it just raises questions about the legitimacy of any review that's going to appear on the site. And, and I'm not even, I'm not sort of, you know, I'm not suggesting in any way that that they have underhanded intentions. No, but it's just it's just it's just perception. Perception is everything, and and I think that you know I can understand why you know Dogfish Head have taken the the decision that they have in requesting that their beers no longer be on the site. And I wonder whether there's going to be other breweries that are going to follow suit. That was a really interesting move. Had you seen that, Prof, that uh, Dogfish Head, um, Sam Caligione, called in journalistic ethics as being a reason, which I think, you know, I don't know that Rate Beer has ever held itself out as being a journalistic site or bound by journalistic ethics. I thought it was a fairly tenuous connection. Prof, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I don't rate beer and I don't rate Rate Beer. <laughs> no, we, we've just spent a, whole heap, we've spent a whole heap of time talking about how um, you know, with Brendan Varus, you know, we, we mentioned that, you know, there, there's certain rules and there's all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's very subjective. And, um, you know, whether it's temperature or glasses or whatever, at the end of the day, it's it's what, what I like. So why would I think that my opinion on a particular beer, uh, you know, means anything to somebody else who's happened to be reading the same site? So I don't sort of bother with it too much. No, and, and, and that's a good point, because, again, I don't delve into the rate beer or the beer advocate um review sites at all the the thing out of this story that i find most interesting is the sophistication that ab inbev is starting to bring to its business you know they were very they were caught on the back foot by the craft beer wave and they are coming out and responding uh with a whole lot of strategic investments they've brought up some you know very highly regarded breweries we've seen uh goose island land in in australia recently you know with a quite a bit of fanfare we've seen uh, you know, there was a story that broke a couple of weeks ago where in, I think it was in China, um, a craft beer bar had, the taps were owned by a small local brewer, but then suddenly they went in and Goose Island reps had installed flow meters um, that were reporting back to Goose Island. We're now seeing you know, investments in, uh, there's been a bit of a furor in the States recently where beer news sites or beer blogs have been funded by AB InBev and brewers have had to ask for their stories about them to be taken down because they felt that that was a, a, a conflict. And now they've invested in, you know, rate beer. Um, and I presume it's not so much to filter the content, but really to get analytical information and the metrics that are going through there that they can use to inform their business. Um, and we've just had a big discussion about tap contracts. I actually think it's them using those sorts of advantages are a much more frightening thing for small brewers than, you know, very visible means like tap contracts. Any, anyone want to take that and stab it or run with it? Yeah, I was just going to mention you did just touch on um, the other particular case was that through their craft beer division, if you want to call that the high end, they actually launched their own um, sort of beer blog or beer news website, which is called the Beer Necessities. And apparently a, a, a brewer 
got approached by a journalist who was writing for this ABM Bev website. They didn't sort of mention who the ownership of the beer necessities was, but just said about interviewing them for a story. And it was only after the fact that this article about Beechwood Brewing, this Californian brewery, was published that they sort of did their homework and worked out that actually this was an ABM Bev owned publication. And that sort of since then the Brewers Association's written a an article um, on its website or their PR consultant, the Brewers Association's PR consultant, has written this piece sort of advising brewers to vet all interview opportunities properly before they, you know, go ahead and just answer questions from any journalist. So, I mean, it does say on the, the website quite clearly that it is an ABNBEV-owned publication. I don't know whether that's really, whether you could say that, that ethically um, anyone writing for the beer necessities has to inform the brewer every single you know a brewer every single time they approach them to write a story but yeah that was just the other case of them sort of moving into um an area of publishing as well as online beer ratings but yeah no look it, it's a really I, I think you know when you start connecting those dots you see that there is you know in in the offices of uh, ab and bev and uh, you know a realization that they really have to come to terms with this market that has changed dramatically under their feet um, and it's going to be very, very interesting to see how they respond and how they use some of their other um, brewery purchases to, to leverage off that information over the uh, next couple of years. For sure. Uh, any other news that you guys wanted to raise? I think I'm pretty good, Prof. No, all good here. Covered off all the good bits. Okay, well, guys, thank you very much for joining us. As we said, listeners, give us some feedback on the new format. See you know, what, what you think, whether you enjoy this discussion, followed by a separate downloadable interview file. Uh, if you really love what we do, you can get behind us and support us by becoming producers on the website. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and you can subscribe to our daily newsletter. And also you can help a brother out by leaving a review on iTunes. Did that sound cool enough to appeal to the kids, Prof? Um, yeah, kind of. There was... I'll just write down, I'll find it later. Something else you said before. Oh, drop. What are, you, are you turning into a house DJ or something now? <laughs> we're we're going we're gonna to drop this app for you or something you said. Oh, <laughs> that, it, really doesn't, it really doesn't gel with that, um, that charcoal knitted sweater that you wear. Uh, the moth's got to it, probably. You know the one? The I v, do. The V-neck. Yeah, the, the, the moth's got to it. So, no, look, I, I am a uh, unstylish middle-aged white man. There's nothing I can do about that. But listeners, you can give us your feedback on the quality of our podcast, if not our dress sense. But guys, thank you very much for joining us. James, thank you for joining us. Have a great week. And we'll, uh, well, next week I will actually be heading off to London on Wednesday night. So we're going to have to work out how we get around that. But we will definitely have a podcast for you next Friday. So, uh, James, Pete, Good to have you with me. And uh, listeners, thank you for joining us on Radio Brews News. And we're out.